welcome to season three of Gill Athletics Connection Podcast. If this is your first time here, we're so excited you hit the play button today. If you like what you hear, check out our library of hundreds of past guests that is sure to give you value. For everyone else, we're so happy you've come back. Quick favor, if you haven't already, consider taking a minute to rate and review the podcast. This simple act helps amplify these amazing stories, and we just love to hear your feedback. Heck, we may even read it out loud in a future episode. Okay, that's enough of an intro, right? Let's get to it. See what today's guest has in store for us. Hey, thanks for joining us here on the Gill Athletics Connections podcast. I'm your host, Mike Cunningham, and I'm just so stoked, so humbled. Before we get to today's guest, it's awesome. We're hitting here in season three. I, I would never have guessed starting in January of 2020 that we would even remotely see a season three. So if you are a returning listener, God bless you. Thank you so much for being here. You're awesome. So humbled. Uh, if this is your first time. Hey, welcome. This is, this is great. I can't wait to intro season 10 one day uh, and see all the changes and all the coaches that we've had here. Now, if you've seen the name of the podcast today, our guest, you're probably wondering where maybe you've seen his name for a coaching track. Maybe he's a high school coach. Maybe he's a college coach. Uh, stop your worried little mind here, unfortunately, because we love track coaches. Today's guest is not a track coach, but we're going to be talking about leadership. This is why I wanted to have today's guest with us today. It's really an important topic for our track coaches on all levels in the summer youth coaches up to our pro elite coaches. I'm super psyched to have Dr. Matthew Raybard here with us today. Matthew, how are you, sir? I'm great. Excited to be here. Man, I'm excited for you to be here. Uh, you know, our podcast here at the Gill Connections podcast is uh, it's all about coaches, you know, and specifically track and field coaches. We want to uplift and honor uh, the amazing journey that they have in this great sport. And on top of that, one of our goals here is to continually bring value to our listeners, which are primarily track coaches. Shocker, I know. Uh, so I'm just super excited to have you here today to talk about this book that you wrote, your research, and kind of just you know stoke some conversation today about what leadership means and how it affects the, the young people that we get to coach out there. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. So let's start with Matthew wrote a book that I've had the honor to read. You've got to go pick it up. It's amazing, actually. It's a quick read. It's not one of these 300 pages either, man. He, he, did, a, he did a good job of uh, cutting out fluff and just giving you the, the, the big stuff here. So his book is called Lead Like a Pro, Effective Leadership Styles for Athletic Coaches. Uh, and you're going to learn here in a second. You'll see on the cover, and we'll have the links down in the show notes, of course. There's a basketball goal. Now, that's not a track. Now, I do love basketball. You know, our, our other half of our company is basketball and volleyball and stuff. So, uh, Matthew, why don't you give us a start? Kind of give us your um, your LinkedIn profile here. Give us, you know, kind of your background in athletics and leadership and why you're even on the podcast today. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I got started, you know, not, not in track and field, but in men's basketball. Uh, I was a men's college basketball coach for over a decade at Division One, and um, had the opportunity to you know, be a coach at several different schools. And, you know, actually kind of backing it up, my first job was at a small Division Two school called Western New Mexico University. And when I got that job, you know, in, you know, in order for me to be an assistant coach, I had to be enrolled in a graduate program. And my dream had been to, you know, be a college basketball coach. I really hadn't, you know, thought about going to graduate school, but if I had to do it in order to be a coach, I was going to do whatever it took. So I, I got down to Western New Mexico and um, I saw my advisor and she told me there were only two programs that I could 
get into. One was counseling and one was educational leadership. And we kind of went through the pros and cons of both. And I could see how they were both applicable to what I was going to be doing as a coach. But when we got to the end, there was that timeline to graduation and everything was exactly the same, two years, four semesters, except counseling required a six hour additional summer internship in the middle. Mm -hmm. So based off of that, I chose educational leadership. And, you know, I had no idea the impact it would have on my life at the time. Uh, and it would actually take me several years before I really understood that impact it would have on me professionally. But, you know, eventually I would go back to school for um, educational leadership and pursue a doctorate while I was coaching and, um, you know, conduct research and write the book. And but that was really that that starting point for me understanding how important leadership was for athletic coaches. I'm always amazed, you know, we look back at it now because we have perspective, right? Looking behind us is 2020, but these forks in the roads that we don't think are all that big in the moment. So you have counseling and educational leadership and you're like, uh, yeah, an extra semester. Yeah, I'll go, I'll go over here. I'm, I'm here to coach, man. That's what I really want to do. So I'll go over here and look where it has led you to, from that small decision. I, I love that. That is just so, so cool to see. <laughs> So you went and got a PhD, you know, I'm from Alabama, I have a hard time spelling PhD. Talk to us about that process and how you picked your, I, it's a thesis, right? I'm not, I'm not joking when I say I don't know much about it. Uh, I barely got my undergrad, Matthew. So, uh, you know, you're several levels ahead of me educationally, my man. Um, so talk to us about the thesis, what you chose and how you chose it and, and what it was all about. Yeah, you know, it, it kind of goes back to that first decision to get into educational leadership right out of college and, and pursue a master's. You know, once I sort of got to getting that introduction to leadership, leadership practice, learning about leadership styles and how applicable they were for me as a coach, I started looking around for more educational opportunities, you know, books on leadership for coaches, trainings, different things. And there just weren't very many. You know, there, there were a lot of books by successful coaches telling me how they did it, which is very valuable. You know, it's great to hear different perspectives and see what other people are doing, but that's not necessarily the way I should do it because I'm not them. And it's not also not telling me necessarily how I can do it. It's just telling me how they did it and kind of looking for other leadership opportunities. A lot of them were more, for, you know, more for management or they were geared towards networking. They weren't really leadership specific. So then I went to my friends in, in other professions and there were so many resources for them. There were tons of leadership resources. They were getting tons of leadership professional development. So I started, you know, reading some of those books, doing some of those kind of professional development opportunities, and they were very helpful, but they were all geared towards managing adults, professionals because that's who my friends in the business world were managing. I was managing 18 to 22 year olds. Other coaches are managing 10 year olds, 14 year olds, high school kids, whatever it is. That requires a different set of leadership skills, a different leadership practice. So over time, I had just always thought there weren't enough of these resources specific for coaches at all levels of sports. And so when I went back to school to pursue a doctorate in educational leadership, it was twofold. One was to be able to continue my development in leadership and help me as a coach and as a professional. But it was also to be able to try to figure out a way for me to contribute to where I felt like there was this gap that there weren't these resources for coaches. And that's what led to my thesis, which 
was intended to do research and figure out what are the best leadership styles and behaviors for coaches to practice. So I could then take this research and tell coaches, here's some great leadership styles and behaviors for you that are going to help you be successful. Yeah, I, I love that. You're right. A lot of these books that are out there are geared towards managing other adults. And at the end of the day, specifically on the high school to college level, we're dealing with 14 to 22 year olds who are, are not adults. They're still forming <laughs> who they're going to become. Their brain is still growing. Uh, so I love that, you know, this passion of coaching of yours, plus add the educational component of it helped build into this, uh, this, this research and this thesis. So one of the things, and, and by the way, disclaimer, he, you know, he's a basketball guy and we're track people. So he's going to give a lot of basketball analogies. He's promised me a few track ones as well, though. Uh, but I actually have uh, a couple of basketball questions for him. It's going to blow his mind. He's no, he did, he's did not see this one coming. So, uh, so, but stick with us on the basketball analogies. I know, uh, on the track and field side, this is hundred percent applicable. And that's why we, we had uh, Matthew here today. So Matthew, when you talk about leadership, so one of the things that the theme of your book, and I really, really enjoyed it. And by the way, someone who doesn't coach kids anymore. So I'm, I'm the person dealing with adults, uh, but haven't had a career coaching college track and field. What I loved about your book and your theme, if you will, was this perceived leadership style versus actual leadership style. Before we get into those, um, you kind of boil it down to five coaching styles. Before we get into that, can you help us understand what does that mean? My perceived leadership style versus my actual leadership style? What's that? What's that mean? Yeah, so you know, this was something that came up during my research. I was collecting just kind of demographic background information early on. And I basically asked coaches, and I was asking college coaches, you know, of these leadership styles, here's a bunch of leadership styles, here's a bunch of definitions. You know, which leadership style do you think you're practicing? You know, do you think you're a transformational leader based on this definition of transformational leadership? Do you think you're a, a servant leader or any other leadership style? And then I had them take a survey that determined what their actual leadership style was. So based on the answers to all these leadership questions, I could then do some fancy math and plug things into a, a fancy program and determine which leadership styles they were actually practicing based on their answers. And when I went back and I said, you know, I looked at, you know, the coaches, what they told me that their, their leadership style was, and I looked at what their actual leadership styles were, that's when I determined there was a big gap between leadership styles coaches as a population thought they were practicing versus what they were actually practicing. Now, that's super interesting. That caught me off guard. So, you know, having my whole life is centered around track coaches specifically, um, and there's some amazingly talented leaders, self-aware leaders, servant leader. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, when you're dealing, not even dealing, that's not even the right word. When you are in charge with raising other people's kids, that's a big, I and mean, that's right up there, you know, with teachers, it's principals, you know, academia, it's, it's, a, it's amazing, right? So I would have thought if you would have said, hey, Mike, so I did the survey, actual leadership versus their perceived, what do you think the, 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 the gap was? I would have said not much like, okay, certainly because there's young coaches coming into the profession on a daily basis, there's, you know, and I'm looking at the whole swath, new coaches to veteran coaches. Certainly uh, there are some people that are still finding their way, right? So maybe it's 25, 30% gap. 
you found, like, I, I can't remember the words you used in the book, but it was like massive, essentially. Like there was a tremendous gap between the style that I think I'm doing as a coach versus their actual. Did that surprise you when you got the results? So, you know, I, I was very surprised. Um, but then when I, you know, looked more into the research and saw, you know, one of the main components that made coaches successful was they had a much smaller gap. Right. So once I was able to kind of piece together, successful coaches have figured out the leadership style that's best for them, that they want to practice and how to practice it. And coaches who have had inconsistent results are new to coaching, uh, are young. You know, typically they're a little less successful when that when I figured out that was more attributable to the fact that, you know, their their actual leadership style and their perceived leadership style were not really aligned. It kind of made more sense right through experience, through education, you know, through observation, mentoring, you know, these more successful coaches gained this better idea of what leadership style was right for them and how to practice it. Whereas for other coaches that had that gap, they were missing some of those, those elements. So I'm going to say it, how I heard it. You, you correct me, Matthew. Coaches, as you got all the data back, as you looked at coaches that were more successful, and I assume, and I think you covered this in the book as well, you define success uh, on the very, um, as coaches, uh, trophy-wise, meaning championships and things like that, right? Not necessarily how many kids right. go on to college, right? Okay. Because um, that's a whole different side of what your success may be as a coach, but we're talking about, you know, your quote unquote paid to win a conference championship, go to nationals, place high, maybe win nationals, et cetera. So um, when you got to look at the data on a more uh, minutia, you saw successful coaches were the ones that had a smaller gap versus uh, maybe less successful coaches had the larger gap. So what I hear when you say that is that the self-awareness of your perceived style versus actual is really critical to, to winning games, winning track meets, winning championships. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. that, uh, and, and there you go. That's why we had Matthew on the podcast right there. Uh, it's, it is all about self-awareness, right? Like it's great that you think one thing and it's unfortunate if the, if the reverse is actually true, the good news is it, it can, you can get better, but you can't get better until you, until you know those facts. Right. So uh, to me, that's why this was so important. The, the study, the, 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 uh, the, he did in the book that he wrote off of the results was one, if you think you coach one way, if it's true, you, some people he took in the survey had to have gotten like they were on, they were, their perceived was their actual. That's great. You keep the, like, that's a lot of validation. But if you are your perceived leadership is one way and the actual is different, well, there's a gap there. That's kind of the bad news. The good news is it can get better. So let's talk about Matthew. Let's go through these five coaching styles. It's in chapter four. So he, a lot of great lead up of to what he's doing with this, uh, with these studies and this um, uh, education here. And then chapter four, we get into the five coaching styles. Uh, before you start with the first one, Matthew, is there a, we're going to go through these five styles. Is there one that's better than the other? So he's, he, we're going to define these and talk about their characteristics as he, as he does that, does that. I want to make sure that there is one that's better that you start kind of thinking about that one. Is there one better than the other in, in these five? So, you know, here's what I'll say about that. It, the research shows that transformational leadership is most commonly practiced by the most successful coaches. 
That doesn't mean it's, it's the leadership style that I could tell all of your listeners, if you practice this, you will be successful. But it's definitely a leadership style that is associated with successful coaches and also student athletes wanting coaches who practice it. Mm. So that's definitely a leadership style to pay attention to. Uh, I think a lot of coaches gravitate toward it. Um, you know, there's some other great leadership styles we're going to discuss that have some really great elements of them that coaches, you know, might want to latch on to and incorporate into their practice. But as a foundational leadership practice, definitely transformational leadership was the most common amongst successful coaches. Uh, that's awesome. So let's get started. Uh, I assume, uh, at least in your book and on my list, number one is that transformational. So maybe we start there and talk to us. We can already start getting an idea. You named these perfectly uh, transformational coaching. Like I can already start thinking of what I think that means. Let's define the first uh, style here, transformational leadership. Yeah, you know, for coaching, I think the, the key element of transformational leadership, that I think a lot of coaches will gravitate to or have heard about is the kind of inspirational motivation component. So it's the idea that your job as a coach is to one, inspire your athletes to work to achieve more than they thought they could on their own and motivate your athletes to reach for goals and accomplish things that they thought that were not possible for them on their own. So it's, it's your job as a coach to inspire and motivate your athletes to be better, to be greater. And I, I think that's the element that resonates with a lot of coaches. And I think a lot of coaches feel like that is a big part of their job and why they got into coaching to motivate and inspire. You know, it's also about building really strong personal relationships with your athletes through a lot of one-on-one -on -one or individual consideration where you're really getting to know them on a personal level and understanding their needs and using that as kind of a template for how you coach them, for how you provide that inspiration and motivation. Uh, I think those are the really two big aspects that a lot of coaches gravitate to with transformational leadership. So I think of that picture, uh, I believe it's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar with John Wooden. And there's the picture of when Kareem was an athlete and young John Wooden, uh, and then older Kareem and really old John Wooden. And, you know, he's helping John Wooden onto the, uh, to the court, uh, probably for a hall of fame induction or something, you know, one of, one of a million John Wooden deservedly is in. Uh, and I think of that, right. Transformation, like, Oh, he knew Kareem as an 18 year old and they still have a relationship 40 years or whatever the time frame would be down the line. Is that the kind of transformational, am I, am I on with that kind of um, example? Yeah, absolutely. And the idea there being that, you know, coach was able to build a relationship with him based on mutual trust and respect that transcended the typical coach athlete relationship that's kind of relegated to the court or the field or the track. You know, it's about knowing each other on a personal level, on a human level. And then because you have that trust in one another, you know, your athletes are more likely to take that inspiration and motivation and be able to trust that what you're telling them, even though they can't see it for themselves or they may not understand it, is something that they should still strive for and work for and push themselves towards. You said this was the one coaches most self-identified with correct is it did i get that right yeah why, why is it why this one is it is it because it's the most um i don't know i'm gonna call it hollywoodish meaning that like i start thinking about a lot of movies of football and uh, rudy and um 
uh, oh gosh, what's the name of the movie? Uh, the high school the football movie uh, with sunshine and um, oh man, people are yelling at us right now listening to the podcast. Uh, Remember the Titans. Remember the Titans. Thank you very much. Yeah. Great movie. I should know that. Yep. Title. But I'm thinking of like those type of you know big Hollywood uh, movies of sports, and those are the I feel like those are transformational coaches from what you described. Uh, is that why most people, most coaches, self-identify with transformational because it's like the most aspirational? of the styles? Yeah, I think that's such a great point that if you are reading a definition of transformational leadership, you know, and, and thinking about, you know, well, there's inspiration, there's motivation, there's building relationships, there's positive communication. It sounds really great as a leader. Those are a lot of characteristics that we hope to see in ourselves as coaches and we hope our athletes see in us as coaches. So I absolutely think you're, you're totally on track there that a lot of coaches want to identify with it or see themselves in that light. Now, whether or not they're actually practicing it was, was what was kind of uncovered in the research, but definitely a lot of coaches are going to gravitate towards that. I think also the idea of transformational leadership is kind of this transcending the idea of what a typical coach is. So it's, you know, there's X's and O's and there's breaking down film and there's telling your, giving your athletes instruction. But then there's like this higher order of coaching to where I'm taking it to another level of coaching. I am now going to help you be this, this greater version of yourself, this greater version of the team. And I think that idea for coaches is kind of a lot of the reason why they got into coaching to kind of help their athletes be even better and achieve more than they thought they could. So I think transformational leadership really ties in a lot with why coaches are in coaching and what I think a lot of us put on a pedestal of the greatest coaches. Yeah, it makes sense. Like as I was reading the transformational and, you know, hearing that most coaches self-identify with that and not necessarily their actual is that the first person, and it probably helped that, you know, your undergrad is from Indiana, but I thought of Bobby Knight and I was like, okay, I don't feel like he, like when I read the description, I don't feel like Bobby Knight fits here. But I felt like Bobby Knight would actually in his head think, oh, yeah, I'm a transformational <laughs> leader. Like that was his style. I, I help people. And I was like, and, and we'll learn as we go through these styles. Maybe Bobby Knight fits in a different uh, coaching style uh, as we move along here. Uh, should we move to the second one? Is that, is that good for transformational? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Number two, transactional. Again, I hear that, that descriptor, transactional leadership, and I can start kind of thinking what that might look like as a, as a track coach. So give us uh, some descriptions and examples of transactional leadership. Yeah. So, you know, transactional leadership is, you know, transformational leadership, I think is a leadership style over the last 10, 15, 20 years has gained in popularity, not only as coaching has changed and evolved, but also as the needs of athletes have evolved mm -hmm. and what athletes are looking for in coaches. You know, a lot of research suggests that athletes are looking for coaches who practice transformational behaviors. They react better to positivity and inspiration and motivation than other forms of coaching. Transactional leadership is a leadership style that I think once I start explaining it, a lot of your coaching listeners are going to say, oh, I know a coach from my past who practiced transactional leadership. It's not quite as common now, but I think coaches are still using it you know, every now and then to kind of change things up or put a little wrinkle or get their kids over the hump. So basically it's a leadership style that's, that's based on the fundamental idea of a contingent reward or punishment system. So the idea being that, you know, 
I'm going to set up a, a drill. Me as a basketball coach, I'm trying to, to have my team be better at shooting and we're struggling to get over the hump. So I'm going to set up a short-term goal where I want us to make as a team a hundred shots in five minutes. And we just haven't been able to do it. So now I'm going to tell my team, if we can do it, we're going to get a reward. So we don't have to do it anymore. We move on to, to more fun drills and we can take a break. If we don't do it, we have to run to the end of the court and back and we've got to do it again. So the idea being the reward will help motivate us to really stay focused and, and accomplish this short-term goal or the punishment will be a deterrent and hopefully achieve that same effect of we'll be focused because we, we won't want to run and do it again. You know, it, it's very, like you said, transactional in nature. Do this to get this, do this, or you won't get that. And, you know, that's definitely a leadership style that was a lot more common. And, you know, nowadays you still see aspects of it, but it, it's definitely changed over the years. Now, that basketball example made a lot of sense. And I can think of some for football, for track. We, we don't have that as much, right? As we're, because we're talking about skill acquisition, right? When you're making baskets or, um, you know, blocking assignments in football for track, like if we're teaching a skill, whether it's, uh, you know, a technique in javelin or the triple jump, if an athlete doesn't do it right, we don't punish athlete and make them run laps or think, you know, it's because we're learning, we're, we're, we're doing uh, a skill acquisition there. But we might have more on track, more of the rules based stuff, meaning uh, show up on a practice on time, you know, don't miss uh, uh, the bus, uh, you know, check in at the right time, things like that. Does that play into this transactional leadership style as well? Yeah, absolutely. You know, transactional leadership is also about setting really standardized, uniform expectations up front. Mm. So, you know, like you said, setting some of those, those rules, setting some of those standards, whether they're, you know, you have to be on the bus 15 minutes early, or, you know, we expect this level of, you know, teamwork or commitment or focus. Um, it's about establishing those standards up front and making sure that they're uniform for everyone. So no matter, you know, what event you're in, no matter what level you're at in the event, no matter you're standing on the team, everybody's held to that same standard and expectation. I wonder how many people, as we were describing transformational leadership, were like, oh yeah, all in, that's me. And then just her transaction, I was like, oh, we have rules. And if we have rules, that means we have um, consequences. If we break them, that's transactional. And I are like, oh crap. Well, now that maybe that's me. Oh man, that doesn't sound as fun or as cool as transformational. <laughs> it's like, oh, see, we're learning. That's, you got to learn these different styles and start, start identifying and then find out reality and start meshing up. Uh, what, what else, what else are we missing in transactional there? You know, I, I think the other thing that, that I'll say at this point is, you know, coaches are going to practice, you know, transactional transformational leadership might be the foundation of your leadership practice. You, you might practice a bunch of different elements of transformational leadership and that's great, but you might also practice a behavior of transactional or a behavior of another style where we'll study. You know, you could still consider yourself a transformational leader and kind of pick and choose from some other leadership styles to kind of round out your individual leadership practice. So you might be a transformational leader who practices, you know, like you said, kind of the rule setting and expectation setting of transactional leadership, kind of combining those leadership styles that that can only that could help transactional leadership be more effective because it's got that trans transformational element behind it. So 
definitely as people are listening to these styles, they might see themselves in, in a number of them. And that's all about building their unique leadership practice. Oh, that's really important. I was going to ask you at the end of the five, is it less about, because because a lot of these, um, these type of books where they start, you know, here's your five styles, here's your three, you know, disc profiling, here's your four, et cetera. In my opinion, experience is it's very uh, pigeonholing. It's like, oh no, you either are this or you are not black or white. And you know, my experience with life and coaches and leadership and training is uh, there's a lot of fuzzy edges that occur in there. So I'm glad you said that as, as far as like, you know, it's not, the goal is not that you are, you know, you find that you're a transformational leader and you only do transformational leader things. In fact, to what maybe I just heard you say there, that actually might be a, to a detriment. You might need a little blend of, of some of these others that we're going to talk about, but is it, and maybe I'll save this question to the last, let's put a pinhole in this question. Let's make sure I ask it and you address it, Matthew, at the end, uh, when we get through the five is, is it more about finding your dominant style and then um, what's the right word here, you know, bringing those other styles in at the right time and, and, uh, and density, the right amounts as well. Is that more of what this is? And put a pinhole, don't answer that yet until we get to all, all five of them. <laughs> That's a little teaser. You got to listen to the whole podcast to get the answer to that. Although we probably common sense know the answer to that, but we want to hear it from, from the good doctor here. Okay. Transformational leader, transactional leader. I had no movies uh, examples to add for transactional. Unfortunately, I didn't have like this, you know, like maybe you remember the Titans. He was big on right. He had to change the program. So he had a lot of rules and things that he had to do. So maybe he, he was as well. All right. So the third one, uh, and you're going to, again, when you hear these names, you're, you're going to have some immediate reaction to like, Oh, I think I, like, I get it. Like, I love these names. Like you did not make these like super high tech, you know, you hear the name, like, well, what in the world is that? Like you, these are great descriptor names. So number three on the five coaching styles is autocratic leadership style. So help us understand what that means, Matthew. Yeah, you know, autocratic leadership, is, it's like transactional leadership. You know, I think when we start describing it, coaches are going to think back to coaches in the past who have used it. It, again, was a leadership style that was a lot more common in previous generations. But it's based on the idea that the, the coach is the unquestioned leader of the team and responsible for mostly unilaterally making all team decisions with little to no input from team members. Mm. So, you know, you're not getting your athletes' opinions. You're really just looking at situations based on your experiences and making all the decisions for the team because you're the coach. And I think that, you know, whereas that one on paper, I think a lot of coaches kind of shied away from it because of how it might make them look. You know, when you really think about it, if you're hired to be the coach, it's because you have the experience and the expertise to do the job. You also are responsible for making team decisions and you're ultimately responsible for their outcomes. So if you frame it in that light, you know, I think that could hopefully give coaches some better context to say it's, it's okay to be autocratic at times. You know, I also, I'll give an example. If you've got a very young team, a very new team that doesn't have a lot of leadership coming from the athletes, you know, you might need to be more autocratic because you're the only one who's, you know, has the experience or the background to really contribute to team decision making. So, you know, whereas, you know, in other scenarios, it might not fit as well. It, it's okay, even though that, that name can be a little scary for coaches, it's okay to think about being autocratic at times. Also, you know, sometimes 
autocratic leaders, you know, you have to make quick decisions in high pressure or high stress situations as a coach. Well, you don't necessarily have time to get a lot of input from people. You've just got to make a decision. Well, that's more autocratic. So, you know, even though that one kind of maybe on paper, I know a lot of coaches shied away from identifying with it. You know, I hope that context gives coaches, you know, a little bit of a, a better understanding of how, you know, it, it's okay to be autocratic at times, or there are some situations where it, it could definitely be beneficial for them to tend towards that leadership style. Yeah. A lot of coaches did a sigh of relief there, Matthew, when you said you have permission that there are times when this is the right, because it does seem like, you know, autocratic. And when you describe it, it's like, oh yeah, this is the coach. No one likes, like no one likes to be under this coach, but then you start thinking about whether it's young team, old team, uh, what the actual context is, you know, whether it's a, a decision in the middle of the track meet, or is this something about, you know, what we're going to do as our theme for the year as a track team, et cetera. I, I think about this. Um, and I can't remember if you used a football analogy in the book, but as we're recording this right now, there's a, a big thing going on in the NFL world, Urban Meyer, right? Uh, and what a great, I mean, you, you know, guys like you who study leadership, you, you guys must be licking your chops. Like this has to be like a, what a great uh, st uh, study, you know, uh, in real life study here, right? Uh, but, you know, Urban Meyer, the difference between coaching, because I thought about this when you said about inexperienced and, and, and then the opposite experience, Urban Meyer dealing with 18 to 22 year olds when he's a college coach is different when he's dealing with a bunch of 25 to 35 year olds, like experienced professionals, making money, making important decisions. Like maybe his style doesn't work in the NFL uh, in regards to that. And I think, you know, again, you hear things and, you know, no, don't necessarily know what's true and what's not true. Uh, but it does seem like maybe it's not a good fit. His style, not, it doesn't matter his coaching skill, I'm not talking about X's and O's. We're talking about dealing with people seems to be maybe a little different for him, NFL versus, versus college. So uh, thanks for that permission. Cause again, a lot of us were like, Oh man, I do this. Is that not good? And I think uh, what's fun is I, I wish, um, and if you, and while you're listening to this, if, you know, I'm huge on Twitter. That's my, my go-to place, right? Uh, tweet me at Mike Cunningham. I would love to know, don't give names. We're not here to call anybody out, but I would love to know as we're going through these transformational, transactional, autocratic, did a coach like automatically pop up in your mind? Like, did your high school coach pop up? Like, oh yeah, autocratic. I couldn't tie my shoe without that man or woman telling me to tie my shoe. And I had to tie it a certain way and you know, whatever those kind of things. I just want to know, like in my mind, that's what I'm doing. I'm like automatically like, oh yeah, this, this coach or, oh, th this coach over here. Okay. Number four. So transformational, transactional, they kind of feel like they're on opposite ends of the coin here. Uh, autocratic and Democratic. There it is. That was good. We didn't practice that at all. He, he nailed that one. That's good. All right. So democratic again. Now maybe this one in today's world gives us a whole different <laughs> thought in our head, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, but as it relates to coaching styles, what's democratic mean? So, you know, and kind of as a caveat to this, you know, what was very interesting about the research was that next to transformational leadership, coaches most identified with democratic leadership. So, you know, again, in reading kind of the definition and understanding the kind of term just democratic democracy, again, it, it sounds like something that people generally want to identify with as a coach. And it, it's basically a leadership style that you know, think of the exact opposite of everything I just said with autocratic. So you are actively soliciting the input, thoughts, ideas, and opinions of all the team members before making team decisions, both large and small. So before you, you know, make a decision on what time you're going to leave for the track meet, 
you know, get some opinion, you know, get some opinions from your athletes, get some opinions from your assistant coaches on what's the best time, you know, before you select who's going to be in, in, in the final heat of the biggest race. Again, we're getting more opinions. You're not going in unilaterally making those decisions without input. You're getting input from all of the stakeholders, taking all the different perspectives into consideration before making those decisions. So this is literally the exact opposite of autocratic, right? So this is, you said big and small. So this is uh, bringing in your team and saying, hey, here are the three designs for our uniforms the upcoming year. I, which one should we go with? Um, hey, here's the schedule uh, and our options for track meets that we're going to go to. Let's vote on it. Which ones do you guys want to go to? That, that kind of, I mean, is it all the way down to those levels as well? Yeah, you know, it's up to the individual coach and them kind of identifying where, you know, they think their team and, and athletes can contribute. But, you know, on teams that I've coached where we've had like a lot of leadership from the athletes, you know, we, we've really solicited a lot of opinions on what plays we're running during the games. Should we make a change in our defense? Because we trusted their leadership abilities to be able to analyze what's going on and give us honest feedback on what they thought was best. You know, for teams that were younger and, and didn't have a lot of experience, then, you know, I tended towards what t-shirt design do you think? What, what would you like to have for post-game meal to give them some, you know, some leadership opportunities and start building their leadership practice, small decisions first, but still acting in a democratic way as a coach. So how do you, on the democratic versus autocratic example, how do you in your mind, how do you, you justify or come to the conclusion of, you know, I am a 45 year old, 20 year veteran coaching this sport or this event. I'm dealing, uh, you're an 18 year old, 19. You're, I don't care if you're a senior, you're 22 year old. I, I've been through this game a hundred times. This is your first time going through this, how, but you want team buy-in. So how do you justify autocratic versus democratic in, in some of the more maybe important decisions and what I mean by those kind of decisions like training decisions we we get into this sometimes where our athletes uh because they were coached differently or in today's world YouTube you know they can go find any type of training online now uh will come to a coach a, you know a respected coach a coach who has done it all and say well I think I need to be trained this way so how, how do you bounce back auto, autocratic democratic in in those type of situations yeah. So what I would kind of suggest for coaches is, you know, trying to look for a balance, right? You know, other than transformational leadership, democratic leadership is the leadership style that athletes most identify that they want their coaches to practice, you know, and, and that, that makes sense when you think about it, that, you know, today's athletes have access to more information faster than ever before. And they have more platforms than ever before to be able to give their thoughts, opinions, and ideas. So it's natural that in the sports space, they're going to feel more comfortable and want to give their opinions to their coaches about a variety of different things relating to the team or their own training. Now, as a coach, I think it's important to then find a balance. If you know you have you know, athletes, if you know you have team members that want to contribute, that want to give their opinions, and like you said, the key word there is buy-in. You don't want to squelch that buy-in that comes with feeling like you're a part of decision-making. You know, so what I would kind of suggest for coaches is, you know, again, you've been doing it a long time. You know what's best for training. You could still make an autocratic decision. You could still be the final decision-maker. 
but you can listen to the, the input of select team members that you feel like have earned you know, your trust or earned the right or have the developed leadership abilities to give their opinions. Just because you've asked for their opinions doesn't mean you need to change their, your decision. Mm. You, know, you could still listen to it, engage in a conversation that's respectful and you know, kind of talk it through and still make a decision that you were gonna you know, go with in the first place. So I would say to coaches, you know, that's a good way to kind of get your athletes on board is be willing to listen. You don't have to change your, your decision, but you can listen to them. And you know what? You might change your decision. You never know. Um, but that can help with buy-in as well because your athletes are, you know, feel like they're contributing to the decisions or you're at least willing to listen to them and consider it. Okay. I have, I have like a thousand questions that are coming up here, but we got to get through all five first or I just, I'll forget one. So let's get to the fifth one. So we had transformational, transactional, autocratic, democratic. Now this one, there's five. So we can't have two sides of each coin. This one's going to be its own coin here. Uh, and this one, I thought, honestly, when I read it, Matthew, I thought this one was the most, I'm going to say controversial, like more like the most like, oh, wow. Like who, who identifies this way? And who wouldn't automatically kind of cringe if they were, if their actual came out to be this way. So the fifth one, is, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing this right. Is it laissez-faire? Mm -hmm. Oh, sweet. Hey, you know, to all my college uh, teachers, you're awesome. Thank you so much that I knew what that word is. Uh, so laissez-faire. So let's define laissez-faire and how that um, uh, interacts here with co uh, coaching styles. Yeah. So, you know, the reason why I wanted to put laissez-faire in there is, because I wanted coaches to know if they had some laissez-faire tendencies. Now, laissez-faire is a leadership style that is not very commonly practiced by mm. coaches at, okay. at really any level of sports. You see it a little more in the professional ranks because it's, it's a leadership style that, you know, fundamentally is the coach taking a step back from coaching. Mm. It's allowing a lot of room for your team members to make decisions and contribute to the direction and vision of the team. It's basically taking democratic and applying it to all aspects of the team and taking another step back. Uh, you know, it's really allowing a lot of room for your athletes and your team members to be involved in decision-making. And I think the, the connotation of that can sometimes be, well, coach is really hands-off. Mm -hmm. Coach doesn't really care. Coach is disconnected. And I wanted coaches to know that it's okay if you're a laissez-faire leader, but you have to really know you're a laissez-faire leader. You have to believe in it. And you've also got to understand what the potential ramifications can be of laissez-faire leadership, of being too removed from decision-making and too removed from the vision and, and the mission of the team. So I just wanted coaches to be able to make sure that they, they were comfortable if they took that more hands-off approach that they, that they understood exactly the, the leadership decision that they were making. So I, th I think laissez-faire is Latin for hands-off. That's kind of how I was learned. I, I could be wrong there. Um, but you said you wanted to make sure coaches knew the repercussions if they fell into this style. What, what kind of repercussions are there? So, you know, I think when, when, you, ha when you don't establish that laissez-faire is your, your leadership style and you're doing that in an intentional way, because of the athletes you have. That's why it's more common in, in the professionals where you, know, you might have, you have a lot of veterans, a lot of strong leaders. So it might be appropriate for a coach to take more of a step back. Um, you know, if you don't establish that and there's not that, that understanding with your athletes, I think your athletes can, can feel like you know, coach doesn't care, 
coaches too removed, coaches just kind of showing up and watching, coaches and really engaged and involved. And that might not be what you're you're going for as a coach. You might really just be taking a step back to maybe evaluate or observe or get to know your team better, but your athletes might take that the wrong way. And so that's why it's really important that coaches identify that they're, they're acting in a laissez-faire way and make sure that they're on the same page with their athletes. Okay, so we said put a pin in it. Our question was, is it not necessarily trying to find uh, self-identify the leadership style and going all in it, in it, or is it more important to find your majority leadership style and then uh, sprinkling in some of the others at the appropriate times and densities? Yeah, you know, I I encourage coaches, and you know, and I wrote the book to be a menu. These are all like the leadership styles that we talked about. These are all the key behaviors. Now figure out what, which ones speak to you. Which ones do you identify with? I encourage coaches to kind of determine a foundational leadership style. You know, for me, that was transformational leadership. That was leadership style I most identified with. I identified with a lot of key elements. Um, but then I sprinkled in other leadership styles. I tried to be democratic and get input from my athletes. Um, you know, there, there are some other behaviors that I tried to use transactional at times. Um, so I think I encourage coaches to kind of find that dominant leadership style. If they have one, if they don't, that's okay. Not everybody does, but try to, it's a little easier to build your, your leadership practice. If you've identified that foundation and then you kind of sprinkle in some other leadership styles from there. So that's kind of where I encourage coaches to start. So I distrust, and I'm one of everybody in this country, by the way, perfection. What I mean by that is when something, you know, when you look at a picture and it looks, you just know it's been curated. It's, you know, it's perfect. Every little, you know, bow ties are in place and everything shot. It just, there's something off about it because real life is not perfect, right? We're, we're flawed human beings. And so Matthew, uh, one of the things that I really loved about your book, like it, it for me, it gave you a ton of street cred here. Like I was like, okay, this dude's writing a PhD and he's writing a book. He's going to come at me saying how, you know, he coached perfectly. He was only coached by people who coached perfectly. I was really impressed, Matthew, of your humility in the book. There's several, several examples that you gave of your own coaching where you had done, you'd made the wrong decisions and it came back to bite you and the lessons you learned from that. I just thought that was like, you, I mean, you wrote it, so you didn't have to put those in there. <laughs> so I just love, you know, your humility with, with that aspect there, Matthew. I think that's uh, really important and really shows the, the truthfulness of, of what you're putting out here uh, with the research. Uh, okay, so I had a couple questions that came up from thinking about as you were describing those and some examples. Uh, we, we're talking a lot about coaches to athlete relationship and leadership as you were discussing, I think it was actually in the democratic side there, uh, it made me think about what's the application here for a coaching staff, you know, a head coach and assistant coaches. And on the track side, you know, we're very jealous of you basketball guys, by the way, you know, you got, what do you got like 10 coaches and 15 athletes? I think it is. It's, that's at least what we tell ourselves. We're, we're roughly dealing with a hundred athletes and a fully uh, staffed uh, coaching staff uh, is six, I believe it is nowadays. If we can have six coaches, our student, our, race, our athlete to coach relation uh, ratio is way askew compared to you basketball guys out there. Uh, and you're a dog owner. People love dog owners. 
so remember I told you authenticity, man. I love yes. it. I love it. That sounds like a big dog too. Is that a big dog? Uh, medium dog, big bark. Yeah. <laughs> that I have been described that way. I love that. That's good. Um, so what is this, how can, is this applicable to coaching staffs, head coaches to assistant coaches and, and vice versa, how an assistant coach works with uh, a head coach? Yeah, you know, I think the head coach on any staff, they're going to kind of set the leadership tone, right? So, and I think it's important and I encourage assistant coaches to understand the leadership style of your head coach. You know, is your head coach transformational? Is your head coach democratic? You know, understand, you know, the leadership style your head coach is practicing. Take that as a cue, but not necessarily a direction. So that doesn't mean that because your head coach is transformational, you have to be transformational. If that's not in your personality, if that doesn't feel right to you as a leader, ultimately the most important thing is that you act in a way that's true to yourself as a leader. Now, if coach is democratic and you feel more autocratic, you know, that's where you have to take the cue from your coach. You know, you might not solicit a lot of opinions. You might just go to coach and say, coach, here's my opinion. And that might just be solely your opinion. But you got to respect that your head coach is going to solicit more than one opinion, even though that might not be how you would do it. So, and, and I think also that's important for head coaches. I think, you know, I always encourage anybody who's hiring, and, and this is, and I would encourage this for anybody who's hiring in administration, if you're hiring coaches, if your coach is hiring assistants, when you're, when you're interviewing somebody, ask them their leadership style. Ask them to describe what their leadership style is. Find out, you know, that tells you a lot about somebody. If somebody says they're a transformational leader, you know, and, and now I know, okay, they really, they really care about building positive relationships. They really care about inspiration and motivation. They really care about how they communicate. That gives you a lot of insight. And that can really help you build your staff in a really great way from a leadership perspective. Not only can you have people with a lot of different styles, which I think is important because particularly in track, when you've got a lot of kids, they have a lot of different needs. So you don't necessarily want to have six coaches who all have the same leadership style. They're not going to be able to relate to all of the different kids. So I, I think it's important, particularly for track coaches, you know, find out what are the leadership styles of your assistant? What are some of those key characteristics? That could also help you kind of, you know, figure out, you know, what kids can they best coach or, you know, how can they help fill in some of the leadership gaps on the staff? You know, what, what needs are we not meeting from our kids? So I think on both sides, it's, it's really important to understand kind of where your head coach is coming from, from a leadership perspective and for the head coach to really take that into consideration when selecting coaches. Yeah, I agree. I thought that's why I really love this perceived versus actual because as I'm thinking about coaching staffs and future coaching staffs, that's exactly what I thought. I thought of, you know, in the present moment, wow, how important, how valuable would it be for you to know your coaches, your three coaches, your six coaches, whatever it is, your volunteer coaching staff, everybody who has input in your athletes, how important would it be to understand their perceived versus actual leadership styles? Wow. Couldn't you be a better coaching staff and more effective? 
right off the bat. And then that secondary, exactly what you said there is the hiring. If I'm going to hire a coach, uh, you know, I want to make sure that maybe I believe in how they're coaching, you know, their, their style, not their leadership style, but you know, what they believe in as far as, you know, long to fast or uh, long to short, short to long, et cetera, all those kind of good things. Uh, but also their leadership style, not only because I want to make sure maybe I'm bringing in a leadership style or styles that I, I want to gel with, but I should know that person's style and whether it will fit in. It's a great point. I, I did not think about that. If we're all transformational leaders. That, that's probably not good. You think you, you, we think about that being the quote unquote best one or the one we most aspire to. But if all of if everybody's actual style is is uh, uh, transformational, we're going to lose out on some some other things there. So I, I love that. That's 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 really cool. Love that. Love that. Uh, another topic that comes up a lot, Matthew, is the transfer portal. Have you, have you heard of the transfer portal? It's if you're in sports, I don't know how in college sports specifically, I don't know how you haven't heard of the transfer portal. Right. Uh, and there's just these, you know, massive amounts of kids that are transferring. Uh, and I'm kind of pro athlete on this, by the way. So I'm, I'm kind of cool that they get to transfer a student can transfer. So I don't know what necessarily the difference would be here, uh, in my opinion. And I got to ask, uh, when we're recording this, we're just coming off of the USTF CCCA convention. So it's like, 1500 primarily college coaches all together talking about everything, which also means we're griping about everything. Right. And I ask, cause you know, the, the transfer portal, uh, I hear more about in football. Like that's just where you know, everybody talks about, you know, the Ohio state quarterback transferring and all this, you know, Bo Nix now is transferring. It's crazy. Uh, things like that. So I asked several college coaches while I was with them, is this, are we also seeing this in track and everybody to a T was like, yes, there are, hundreds, if not thousand plus kids in the transfer portal. It's happening every day. There's new people. Uh, there's people who only recruit off of the transfer portal. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, but what I started thinking about was as I'm, as we're recruiting student athletes, you know, and we'll just stick to the traditional high school to college. We won't talk too much about college to college necessarily, because I don't have much experience with there, but I started thinking about is if I know if I'm a coach and I know my actual leadership style, would it not be a benefit to recruit kids that either matched that style or at the very least during recruiting, being very open and transparent to the kid about my style? So if, if I'm a, if I'm an autocrat, if I, you know, maybe my perceived is transformational, but my foundational leadership style is actually autocratic. If I express that to an athlete while I'm recruiting him or her and their parents, then they're making the decision in whole, it's like, oh, okay, coach is telling me he makes the decisions. So if I'm going to go there, I got to be okay with it. Wouldn't that help in decreasing the amount of transfers that you might have? I'm not sure there's a great question in there for you, Matthew. I may have just been just thinking out loud there, but, but, but w w would there be benefit? Do you, do you think there would be benefit of a coach knowing their actual foundational leadership style? And so they could be more transparent with recruits. Would that help create stickiness, you know, less transfers? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I, I absolutely think it would. I, there's always going to be kids who want to transfer. They're not playing enough. You know, they didn't like the campus life. They want to switch their major. There's, there's always going to be reasons why kids transfer that are really out of coaches control. Mm -hmm. But to kind of help combat some of this additional transferring that we've seen, I think it would be extremely helpful for coaches in the recruiting process 
to be very open and honest about their leadership style, mm. you know, how they coach, how they interact with their athletes, how they communicate, build relationships. The more information you could give up front, I think the better, because I think one of the things that kind of contributes to transferring is kids come in, things immediately don't look how they thought they would. Mm. And it's, it's an uphill from there for the coach to try to get them to stay or get them to buy in and be invested. You know, that initial impression, if you've done it, uh, the work to set the stage from the perspective of how you are going to be as a coach, your expectations, your rules, your standards, your, how you communicate, you know, I think it gives you a better opportunity for your athletes to come in on day one and say, okay, this is a lot like what coach told me. Now, whether or not that works out for them, you'll, you'll know over the course of the season, but I think it gives you a better chance. Um, and I think it also is going to help you more quickly develop a stronger culture and foundation because everybody's walking into kind of the same thing. They knew what they were walking into. They had a pretty good idea and they're more ready to kind of take it on in a new environment as opposed to a number of new athletes kind of being taken aback that things are very different than what they thought. And now you're kind of working through some of those challenges as a coach. Yeah, that, that's what I was thinking is the, you know, there are certainly, to your point, going to be a subset of kids that transfer for other things that are outside of our controls, coaches, right? You mentioned majors, homesickness, what, what have you. We don't have track. We don't have too much of the playing time issue, right? The, the quarterback who thought they were going to start and then they get beat out by first and second string, right? Um, but we have more of, I think, more stylistic uh, clashes like, Oh man, I thought coach was going to train me this way. Or I thought I would have more input into my training than what I really have. That's so I just thought about that, like more openness and transparent, uh, to decrease the amount of transfers. Again, there's probably always, it's a, this is a big swath, right. But probably always going to be people that transfer out of every program. Uh, you're not going to quote unquote, make everybody happy, but having that transparency from the get go, I love how you put that. If you don't, uh, you know, the kid walks in, it's like, Whoa, wait a minute. I thought, I didn't know we were going to have to be on time <laughs> for track practice. What? Mm -hmm. So it's now it's an uphill, like, cause then you start finding other things, right? Like, well, wait a minute. Now I remember him saying X or she told me, blah, blah, blah. You know, you start finding reasons to get yeah. mad. What, where, what is the role of captains play in this? Cause at face value, I feel like captains are automatically democratic, but as I've interviewed, you know, hundreds of coaches out there, everybody does captains a little different. Some people have no captains. That, that, that seems more autocratic, but I, I'm willing to bet I'm wrong that it's not an automatic autocratic uh, style if you have no captains. Uh, the reason I always, always get when I talk about no captains is the coach will say, everybody's a captain. So that, now that seems very democratic in that sense, right? Yeah. But captains, you know, go everything from, you know, we don't have captains. Uh, we have um, a couple of coaches, uh, several coaches have uh, committees. So instead of captains, you have like this council, this committee of, of uh, track uh, of, of athletes uh, to, you know, we name two captains or three, cap whatever. What's the role of captains in leadership style for coaches? Yeah, I, I think captains can be a really good conduit between the coaches and the athletes. Um, you know, I think they can play a really important role in the team, but, you know, it depends on a couple of things. One, you know, how much involvement does a coach allow captains to have? If you're a very autocratic leader, then you're probably not empowering the leadership abilities of your captains very much. You're probably just using them to disseminate information 
or maybe help you kind of be you know responsible for you know, let's get everybody there on time let's make sure everybody's engaged it's not really contributing to team decisions um, so i think as a coach it's really important for you to identify you know what are you what are you hoping to get from your captains what are your expectations for them and then clearly communicating that you know because some kids there's that expectation of i'm a captain now now i'm going to tell coach what i think i'm going to be the the voice of the athletes and a team that might not be what coach is looking for based on coach's leadership style. So I think establishing that up front, being open about that in the communication process with your athletes when they're chosen is really important. Kind of establishing their role as captains, it's really helpful uh, because I've seen it both ways where you know, kids are, are selected as captains and it's not what they thought it was. And it can, it can create a more fractured relationship with the coach. So I think that's really important up front. And I think also, you know, I encourage coaches, don't necessarily just look to your most accomplished or best athletes to be leaders, to be the captains. You know, they might not be comfortable in that role. There might be other kids on the team who have um, other leadership skills or abilities that might be better suited to that role. So really, if you're invested in having captains, take a critical look at what leadership abilities of your athletes you value and then trying to figure out a way to put those kids, regardless of maybe their talent level or their accomplishments, in a leadership role to some extent, so that you can kind of maximize the impact that captains can have. I'm glad you brought that up. That, that was actually, as we were discussing, you know, Matthew, having you on the podcast, that was one of my first questions, themes that I thought of was on the, on the athlete side, as a coach's uh, purview, how much of leadership is a talent level identifier. And I don't mean talent like talent is the, the, the talent of leadership. I've never heard of a walk-on kid for basketball, uh, football track who became captain their freshman year. It's always the number one recruit that signs. That's, a, that's our captain. It, that seems not cool. <laughs> that seems like if leadership is really leadership, then it's not it, it, it's, it should be disembarked from talent level. It could be your talented, your most talented kid or kids, but there has, there has to be other ways of identifying talent. I'm sorry, identifying leadership. So, so my original question was how dependent is, is leadership on talent? How, how interplayed are those? It's not a great question. I know I'm <laughs> putting you on the spot here I, a little bit. <laughs> I, you know, it depends, hmm. you know, and, and I'll, I'll kind of give an example, you know, when, when I was a, a coach at, at Dartmouth, uh, you know, our best player, just, he was tremendous. He was the Ivy League player of the year. He was a tremendous kid, just unbelievable. Um, you know, he, he was not a captain for us. Um, and he wasn't very outgoing. He wasn't very vocal. Um, but that doesn't mean he wasn't still a leader. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think sometimes coaches forget that leadership isn't about all about communication, that a lot of it is, is your behaviors. And he was a tremendously hard worker. He was always in the gym. He had developed over the course of his four years in college, probably as much as, if not more than any player that I coach, he, he don't, but, but he just wasn't vocal about it. So it was important that we, we valued those leadership characteristics as well, so that he knew he was a leader just in a little bit of a different way than maybe he thought a leader should be. But also it was important for us to say, okay, he still has an important leadership role on the team. He's just not comfortable being a captain. Mm. And we had some other guys on the team who maybe weren't as talented as he was or as accomplished, but they had the respect of their teammates 
to be able to give the more vocal leadership, those verbal cues that they were more comfortable giving and their teammates would listen to them. And it was important for us to identify that first off, you could be a leader and not be a captain. And also we wanted to put guys in a, in a captain's role who were comfortable with it and who had the respect of their teammates so that there was that maximal impact of what they were saying as captains. I mean, you can see why we had Dr. Raidbard on the show, right? I mean, come on. So love this. This is highly important to what you're doing as a track and field coach. You go to these professional development, you know, we just coming off USTFCCA. So we had a lot of, you know, how to coach the long jump, how to uh, coach distance runners, et cetera. And we also, and I love that the USTFCCA does this. We had leadership classes there as well, you know, how to be a better head coach, et cetera. So that's why this is so important. This is a, uh, a part of your puzzle, right? If you think about your, your life and career as a puzzle, this is one of the pieces and, and maybe it's a little bit larger piece than some of the other pieces as well. So, uh, so I love that. So Matthew, you know, one of my bosses here, his famous thing, and maybe he only started it when I started uh, putting input in here, but you know, I'll tell him something and he loves to look at me and goes, okay, so what? And he doesn't mean it rudely. Like he's saying, okay, that's great. Cause I'm a big information guy, right? So I'm always like trying to disseminate information. So I'll say, okay, so what? So what's the action step? So wh what does that mean? What do we do with this information? So you just gave us uh, great information. Uh, we were talking about perceived versus actual leadership styles, and you just gave us five leadership styles. So maybe we have half the information right now. If we're listening right now, we can uh, now put maybe words to our perceived style. Like we can say, oh, okay. I never, I, I knew how I you preferred to coach and lead. Now I can see that that's a transactional style. Okay. there, That's half the puzzle. So what? So what do we do next? What's the next steps? I'm actually going to give the first two steps. <laughs> I'm going to steal your thunder because the third step is really important, but you got to explain this one. So for me, my opinion here, and Matthew will agree with me, trust me. Uh, I think the next immediate steps are, as you listen to Matthew explaining those different foundational leadership styles is starting with putting those words to it. That, okay, here's my perceived you got to take the next step. Now you, you got to connect the dots here and start working on what your actual is. So for me, my suggestion is, is go buy the book. It's an economical book. I ain't, you know, ain't how you hear, how can you do a hundred dollar books out here, man? Uh, and it's chock full. I, I love, I love that. It's not a 300 pager. Like it is the fluff ain't there guys. It, it is, it is right here. Uh, in what I think it was a hundred. Yeah. It's a hundred pages. You, you can do this on your next trip, your next bus ride, your next flight for a track meet. Uh, so I think it's buying the book and reading the book. How many times do we have these huge libraries and it's all books we ain't read, right? So it's always important. You buy the book, but you got to read the book, right? Uh, so read the book. Uh, Matthew expands on what we talked about here tremendously. Uh, and what would be maybe a next step, Matthew? It's one thing to read it. Uh, one thing to buy it, one thing to read it. What, what do we do next with that information as we're starting to understand our perceived versus actual leadership style? Yeah, so, you know, I think what we talked about today with perceived and actual is so important, getting those aligned, figuring out the leader that you are, you know, uh, it's so important that you establish that because then once you read, you know, as you progress through the book, you'll start getting those tools to then be able to go out and do it. Mm -hmm. And that's that. That's the, just that key. And I think that's where a lot of coaches, their leadership style gets kind of lost is, you know, okay, I want to be a transformational leader. I, I know about transformational leadership. Okay, I'm going to go out and be a transformational leader, but you got to get the tools. 
you know, you, you know and, and I give lots of, of ways to kind of go out and be a different type of leadership styles, give coaches those tools, um, you know, and then, and that's a lot of the work I also do outside of the book is, you know, helping coaches through workshops and trainings. And, um, you know, I, I have a survey where, you know, I, it's the survey I gave coaches and it'll, you take the survey, it'll tell me what your perceived leadership style is. And it'll tell me what your actual leadership style is. And based off those results, I'll help you, you know, work to kind of figure out how we can bridge that gap and get you moving forward. So, you know, just a lot of different ways to kind of move coaches practice forward. But, you know, again, it, it's, it's about kind of starting at that, that foundation of where am I as a leader? Where do I see myself? And then going from there. Matthew, I love it, man. And I'm so thankful that we got to do this. You know, it's important for me, uh, for our listeners and for our coaching body to think outside the box and for track and field specifically, we can be very boxy. <laughs> we can stay in that box. So, you know, I love when we first connected that I, I had some hesitation. I'm like basketball, like, I mean, we're jealous of basketball. What, what's, what's he going to come and talk to us about on track coaches? Uh, but I love that you are from basketball and not track and field. That's, that's part of being outside the box, seeing things differently, working with different types of athletes, working with different quantities of athletes, et cetera. Uh, so I'm just so thankful that, you know, you'd be here today and, and uh, share your research. Uh, I, I'm assuming that it took a lot of time and a lot of uh, sleepless nights to put it all together. Uh, you were dealing with coaches, so I know it did, <laughs> uh, but I'm just so thankful, man. What, what did we, anything we missed uh, before we sign off today? I want to make sure we give as much complete picture for our coaches out there. Yeah, you know, I, and I really appreciate the, the kind words about um, kind of some of the examples I use in the book, but you know, I, I tell coaches, you know, I was a college basketball coach, but I, I tried to write the book for coaches at all levels in all sports. My lens was college basketball. The examples that I use in the book are from my career. But the reason why I did that was because the mistakes I made are not exclusively college basketball coaching leadership mistakes. There are mistakes that I've seen coaches at all levels in all sports make that I want to help them try to correct. So that may have been my lens basketball, but you know, I, I really hope that when, when everybody reads the book, that they see that this is not a basketball leadership book. It's a leadership book that I just happened to write as a, that when I was a basketball coach. So, um, you know, I hope people will pick up the book and enjoy it and that they'll be able to, to see how all these different scenarios and leadership styles and examples relate to, you know, them as a coach, their sport and, and the age group that they coach. I love it. As coaches, we're always asking our athletes to get just 1% better every day. Well, here's your opportunity, coach, to get better 1% every day. Lead like a pro, effective leadership styles for athletic coaches. Again, I'll have uh, all the links and stuff like that in the show notes. And Matthew, thank you again, man. Really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Appreciate you. Thanks, Mike. What an incredible journey Coach has been on. So awesome to hear their story in their own words. Tremendous proof of the positive effect coaches make on a daily basis. Help us spread the word of this great journey by sharing on your favorite social media channel. And don't forget to take a minute to rate and review the podcast. You just might get a shout out on a future episode. That's it for today. Join us next week when we'll connect you with another amazing coach.